1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Sociology. I'm your host this week, Arturo Bayaki, and in each episode, we look at a new sociology book and talk with its author. And this week, we have Teresa Gowan, author of Hobos, Hustlers, and Backsliders, Homeless in San Francisco, published by University of Minnesota Press. Dr. Gowan's book comes out of her multi-year ethnography in San Francisco, where she was initially looking at homeless recyclers and the way that they negotiate the uh, informal recycling economy of the city. But over time, the project expanded more broadly to look at how these individuals negotiate other institutions, such as those related to corrections, shelters, and treatment centers, and how they're exposed to different languages and understandings of what, homelessness is all about and what are the root causes of homelessness. And so Dr. Gowan's book is kind of an empirical reporting of how individuals themselves who use these services take up the language provided by these institutions to make sense of who they are and the daily struggles that they face. Anyway, I hope you stick around to listen to this very interesting interview. And uh, without further ado, uh, here we go. All right, so today we have Teresa Gowan, author of Hobos, Hustlers, and the Backsliders, Homelessness in San Francisco. And, uh, Teresa, the first thing I wanted to say, just thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a wonderful opportunity. Now, to have full disclosure, I have to say that Teresa is part of the U of M uh, University of Minnesota sociology faculty, where I'm also a graduate student. So it is not just pure... Uh, luck that I ran into your book but I I have to say I did enjoy reading it. I was reading um, some chapters last night to prepare for the interview and I I loved how you wrote the book. I I really liked the style of the writing that you did and it seems like you weave in kind of policy analysis with your ethnography and, and the stories kind of go in and out of the writing. So I really enjoyed just the way you organized the book. Great. Yeah. Just to start out, you know, how did you come to study homelessness in and, in, in San Francisco? I mean, can you, well,
0: yeah, I, you know, there was a lot of different things I, I could have been studying. I started the project when I was, uh, you know, a relatively sort of junior graduate student. And I was living in the mission district in San Francisco and, um, just off of 24th street, which is a, Sort of major pedestrian, you know, and as well as transit corridor, and you know, very vital kind of street. And there was all of these guys pushing um, these these carts loaded up with with bottles and cans on them past my door, and I would I would hear them coming along. They were partly, you know, looking for stuff to recycle in the public bins, but they were also just people who had been doing that elsewhere and just coming along there on their way to to sell the stuff so basically you know it's this time where there was a lot of talk as there has been since you know the early 80s in san francisco about you know the large homelessness problem and what should be done about it and who are these people and i was seeing these guys who were um incredibly hard workers and you know the, the one thing that really struck me was like well these, these guys are major manual workers and that's actually not what I'm hearing about homelessness I mean, I'm hearing about mental illness um, and you know drug addiction um, and you know criminality to some extent and I'm hearing about homeless families but I'm, I'm not really hearing about this this kind of major workforce that seems to be right. you know involved in the informal recycling industry so that just kind of intrigued me. And to be to be honest, I, I kind of um, – I, I think I projected onto those guys a little bit before I even knew them because the older white guys who were, you know, these sort of grizzled manual workers, they really reminded me of my uncles back in the UK. And, uh, you know, I was sort of thinking like, well, what would be happening to them right now if it wasn't for, you know – the welfare state, because you know, my uncle Jack, for example, had been out of work for a long time. So, you know, I, I sort of had this, this, this sort of ready-made empathy, I guess, going going into the project, hmm. which which got me kind of excited to go out there and talk to them.
1: What What was the goal of the project that you kind of eventually developed mm-hmm. into this? Um book? I mean, what were you trying to find out exactly?
0: Well, it started off a bit, um, you know, differently from how it finished, like most projects. <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> you know, I was initially, I was really
0: interested in the recyclers, the homeless recyclers and their role within the the waste management industry. So I, I had more of a kind of, I guess you'd call it an informal economy interest, basically seeing them as being the, the return of say, the figure of the rag picker from, mm-hmm. you know, before the, uh, you know, the great changes of the New Deal where, you know, there were people who, who lived on the bottom of society off of other people's discards. You know, that this, basically this was part of the of a return of a more um, informal economy, more, more characteristic of the global south in the richest country in the world. And and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of examples you can point to as indicators of that. So I thought that that would be an interesting angle to deliberately treat these guys as workers, um, you know, who were homeless rather than look at them as, you know, Mm these, these multi problem individuals that I was reading about in the, in the literature, you know, on, on homelessness, which at that time, um, you know, was completely dominated by, by this kind of, Extremely individualized, um, pathologizing view of what homeless people were.
1: Right. Yeah, I feel like there's a whole chapter, the hobo chapter. We seem to argue that recyclers are kind of the new archetype of, or the hobo archetype of these self reliant, um, individualistic um, personas that are surviving by doing this uh, informal, uh, working in this informal economy, as they're almost as entrepreneurs. Uh, part of the waste management system. Yeah, no,
0: that absolutely. Although I mean, you know, whether they saw themselves as entrepreneurs or workers or even hobos, you know, because I, I basically, you know, it was them who came up with the idea that they were the new hobos and not, not me. <laughs> you know, it, that really depended on their existing politics and where they were coming from, and and I, I sort of, I, I found people claiming to be you know, like the hobos or new hobos in, in three different parts of the city. And I was never clear if this was an idea which had been started by the one guy who I call Morris, who was really this wonderful sort of intellectual of the recycling, uh, homeless recycling crowd, or, and that it spread from him or if it was something that people came up with separately in different places. But
1: So really going back to this lineage of, you know, what the hobos did in the beginning of the century and is somehow speaking to what they're doing uh, almost as an identity, I guess, huh? like where they're mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. trying to find a, a place in between, um, you know, what you keep going back to the kind of pathology mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. myths of, of the homeless um, and as being poor or as being lazy. Yes. You know, like they're, they're neither lazy nor sick. They're hobos. Exactly.
0: Neither lazy nor sick. Yeah. I mean, this, this one, I could. I could just give you a quick quote if you like. I mean, yeah, that'd you know, be great. from from this guy Morris that I was talking about um, he's, he said uh, you know people think that the hobos were these free spirits, you know, hopping trains, travelling the country. It's all got the Disney treatment now. And, and I ain't saying that there wasn't hmm. good times, but you've got to remember the freedom had another side. Most of those guys worked very hard just like we do. A man that would not work, they would call him a tramp, a yeg. He was no hobo. Hobos, they were working men and people forget that. And, you know, what what he's saying is we are the true hobo element. (laughs) We do this hard, dirty work. We have nothing. But the good side is that we are free. We don't Mm. have to take too much bullshit. Now, I mean, of course, he did have to take bullshit uh, a lot and, you know, would get very angry about it. But the bullshit he's talking about is is rather different, um, you know, from that of the the hobos of 1904, you know, like a lot of of what would get him and his colleagues um, most upset was being treated like idiots and, you know, sort of forced to articulate their lives um, in terms of you know that how their individual problems um, and weaknesses had led them into homelessness um, over and over again in order to get services, and they found it extremely demeaning, so actually, a lot of these guys lived very independently of the services in san francisco so even though as you say um, san francisco is, is is a center for homeless services um, a lot of these guys actually had very, you know, very little contact with the social service infrastructure there, uh, because they they had unpleasant experiences with it.
1: Reading your book, you get the sense that these are really resilient individuals who have to work to survive, and yet to get supports, they almost have to subscribe um, to what it sounds to them is kind of a demeaning identity of either being sick or being. Um, lazy, but something definitely is wrong with them, um, and and that's why I enjoyed the book and how you kind of frame the the three different ways that homelessness is understood throughout the different public policies that have existed. So mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about these different types of talks uh, that you mentioned early on in the book, and you kind of then use to kind of frame how these individuals themselves understand and take up that language, and sometimes resist that language.
0: Yeah, no, definitely I can. I mean, you know, the the book's got this. Um... This schema, which is, is quite sort of simple, and the idea is that there's these, there's these three constructions of of homelessness and, and indeed of poverty that we, um, that we, we've come to kind of get used to duking it out in the public sphere. Um, in in America, um, so so basically, I, I argue that there's sin talk and sick talk. Uh, you know, the the very pathologizing these poor people. You know, like they they all have multiple problems with substance abuse, mental illness, lack of social capital, etc. This this kind of talk, which was which was predominant, you know, among among the the, the 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 social worker kind of kind of layer in the city. Although by no means like the only way that they thought. Right. Um, and then there was this quite strong, but, you know, but less than the other two um, discourse of, of system talk, which really did, you know, turned the gaze away from the homeless person themselves and said, look, why are we generating so much homelessness here? You know, and so that, so this, this would look on the local level, at you know, like obviously the extremely high cost of living and lack of affordable housing, um, but also, you know, at the, the the job structure why there was like so few jobs um you know entry level jobs in construction for example, which was doing doing well you know through through the mid-90s at least in in California when it had fallen apart in other places. Uh, But somehow, like, these kinds of guys were just not getting into those jobs. So people be looking at institutional racism, lack of affordable housing, and then, you know, the broader picture of the changes in the American economy to explain what was going on with homelessness and, you know, obviously to the the lessening safety net. I mean, so those who are doing the system talk, which is, you know, like – you know, preeminently the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness who are really just a a, a fantastic organization always run just by a a handful of people but just very, very committed to getting their message out there and just continuing to push a systemic discourse. You know, was it's some, something which was extremely valuable. Um, you know, not only just within within the political debate, and you know, from my perspective, but you know, also for people on the street who would actually read, you know, the street sheet, their publication, and and you know, feel that they could they could say the problem is not me. Perhaps it's not me who's fucked up. You know, just which, which was you know something which I heard all the time It's like why is it always about me and all of my issues you know there's other stuff going on which is affecting affecting my life chances here why is nobody talking about that and so the coalition echoed these feelings and legitimated them for people in a really powerful way and you know that I think that's also something which is very unique about San Francisco how strong system talk um, you know has remained in in that city despite all of the defeats of the last 20 years, it's its really extraordinary. What I
1: really liked about the project as it seemed like it developed from just looking at uh, recycling was how how people themselves take up these discourses because, I mean, most people have heard these things, right, that homelessness is a result of not working hard enough or the medicalization of homelessness, right, that the closing down of hospitals has led to this wave of, mentally ill people and and while that's probably true to some to a certain extent that that's a definite campaign policy that you, that people are aware of and also this issue of affordable housing but what I what I really liked about the book was then empirically what does this mean on the ground like what how do homeless individuals come to understand their own predicament you know in the city where where these things seem to be going like it seems to be kind of a ground zero of homelessness advocacy in a way um and so i was wondering if we can kind of talk a little bit about what you actually discovered i mean how do people um do they adapt to these discourses do they reject them do they do they accept them
0: well right so uh, you know as as we were talking about before i I started off with the recyclers right and so Uh they were very interesting discursively and in fact that's what pushed me in this direction of 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 looking at Sin Talk and Sick Talk and System Talk and seeing how, you know, how people were negotiating those discourses and the institutions, you know, which were, you know, very materially shaping their lives through, you know, using those discourses. Uh, It was the recyclers who took me there because, you know, they would just keep telling me, you know, I'm not a bum, I'm not criminal, I'm not sick. And, you know, that they would You know, for example, they didn't need to go down my street. If you remember at the beginning, I was saying that, that, you know, like all of these homeless recyclers were always going past my street. It's actually quite a busy street. And, you know, I only realized after a while that a lot of them weren't even collecting anything. They already had completely full carts, you know, with like 10 extra garbage bags tied around the edge, you know, like perhaps 200 pounds of bottles that they were lugging along the street, they actually would have been much better to take a quieter street like 23rd Street <laughs> or 25th Street, but they okay. they wanted to display their hard work to the population right. and say, look, you know, we're not that thing you think we are, you know, and in fact, you know, obviously they succeeded with me because I got interested in them, you know, and, and wanted to kind of look at that further, but... You know, they would
1: So you're saying they make they're making a statement like yes, here I am Absolutely and I, I'm here loud you I'm slowing down traffic you have to acknowledge me as a exactly as a real they would entity. they would go right
0: into the into the traffic sometimes and like they would use you know very assertive hand signals to hold up the traffic when they were taking heavy loads across intersections for example and you know it, it was extraordinary to me especially as i was doing you know some comparative research in st louis at the time and the the, re, the homeless recyclers there they were they were like skulking around and always worried that someone that they knew would see them you know and so so this is what really alerted me to how performative you know the the recycling was it wasn't just about the money it was about honor you know so so basically the recycling um scene did it did become a kind of hotbed of a homeless version of the kind of system talk of the coalition even though there wasn't that much um interaction between the two sort of the two bodies because these guys did not live in the tenderloin where the where the coalition is is housed you know they they basically avoided it because they saw it as a sort of center of sin talk and you know like this drug economy and a lot of sort of bad behavior and people people who are much more invested in being you know in in the criminal economy and so they they just didn't like it there at all they didn't like the streets there and then they didn't like the institutions because it's also like a major institutional center for for homeless folks right so they didn't like having to be you know pathetic and sick inside of the shelters (laughs) and they didn't they didn't like being ripped off and you know abused out on on the sidewalk and offered drugs if they were trying to stay off of them right so they hated the tenderloin you know the TL um, in general and they didn't have that much contact with the coalition but they did they did like the street sheet and you know this
1: which is which is a, a newspaper yeah or yeah what it's, is it's one it's of
0: those like. it's one of those sort of homeless newspapers that um, you know basically they give they give them out to to homeless folks to sell and they can sell them for a dollar each and um, you know t- this is a kind of program they have in a lot of cities, but um, you know m- my sense is that the street sheet is really one is, is really one of the most excellent of these publications and it really avoids um, you know either sentimentalizing or or, or pathologizing you know the, the homeless folks themselves and you know names names um in a way which is very dignifying you know so like if if somebody's got a first person account it, it's it's you know their their name is right in there whereas you know this the whole kind of medicalizing approach is that these vulnerable people need to be sort of You know, their identities need to be protected because it's so shameful and they need to be, you know, they can't be trusted to make Hmm. any any decisions for themselves, you know. So I think even just by the very character of the way it presents its homeless writers and homeless interviewees in the stories, the street sheet sends a message like there's nothing shameful about this person. It's what's happening to them that is shameful, you know, which is, it, it's, it's almost like a subliminal message behind the message, which I think, I think the guys picked up, up on very, very strongly. Um,
1: so it dignifies this dignified version of homelessness resonates with the recyclers.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And some of them were more radical than others. Like I said, you know, so there was people who were into being hunter gatherers. There were people who were more had the entrepreneurial model as you were saying earlier. And there was a lot of folks who you know, sort of a kind of blue collar work and we're really recreating the, the sort of camaraderie and, um, you know, sort of sense of honor of being a blue collar worker. So, in fact, the competition, I mean, you know, my sense was that I, I went in expecting to find a more entrepreneurial thing going on, but I found very little competition Um And in fact, a sort of almost an ethic of subduing the competition as much as possible. And so I actually felt that the kind of work
1: between the the recyclers, you mean, they weren't competing for, you know, if there's a good place to get cans or get cardboard boxes, they would work together. Exactly.
0: They work together. They would tell each other about good places to go. I mean, I was continually being told good places to get stuff. Hmm. For example, when, you know, when I started out, because I was doing it myself, and and you know, I I'm at one point I said to this one guy, he had just told uh, a guy called Dennis like his best place where he got stuff. I was like, why do you tell him about that? You know, you you fill up a whole load over there, you know. And <laughs> You know why why did you why did you tell him? And he's like, oh well, you know, well you know that he's a good guy. He wouldn't go in and clean up you know, ahead of me, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. Um, you know, like that he wouldn't that's, take everything. He wouldn't take everything. Cause he would oh. know that would be a, a mean thing to do, you know? So there was just kind of giving each other the benefit of the doubt, which, you know, included across race lines, um, which, which was actually quite inspiring, I thought. So it was, it was less entrepreneurial in some ways and, and more of a sort of a team of workers, even though they were each working for themselves. They actually broke down the structure which was encouraged by the, the system, which is obviously that you, you just take your own stuff in. They broke it down to some extent. Some people worked together and a lot of people stockpiled together Um, you know, so they would, Mm. they would like, you know, collect a whole bunch and then take it in, you know, as a group. So
1: was there any kind of, I don't remember in the book, if you mentioned this, if there's this feeling that they're making use out of things that we throw away, um, this kind of critique of a over consumerist society and the, how we just go through resources and here they are, uh, the supposedly, you know, people who are pathological, but they're actually taking our trash and creating value out of, out of it. Was there any kind of critiques like that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was quite broad. I mean, you know, not everybody went as far as the hunter gatherer types who, you know, had a very strong critique and, you know, really considered that in such an affluent city, they could get absolutely everything they needed from the, from the garbage. So they were sort of like freegans, right? So, but that was mm-hmm. just one, one little group that I knew. I mean, I think in, in general though, um, there's something about spending your life jumping in and out of dumpsters which makes you kind of have those ideas to some extent. So even people who really did not have much kind of alternative exposure to, you know, alternative ideas of of, you know, how people should live actually became, you know, really avid dumpster divers and even though they were mostly looking for bottles and cans, they would they would always be sort of saying, "God, it's amazing what people throw away," and they would bring me presents constantly out of the garbage. You know, I was just Oh, yeah, yeah, there's a steady stream of like, you know, blenders and sweaters and stereos and <laughs> oh, stuff. Wow. You know, that did you keep that stuff? Yeah, sure. I mean I I'm I'm I have no problem with dumpster diving. <laughs> I did plenty of it myself. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think it, there's something about living on the bottom, which makes you makes you notice what people throw away, right? And, it's, and mm-hmm. kind of marvel at it, especially, you know, those who had, had had, you know, sort of like lower middle class, say, lives, you know, and had taken this stuff for granted. And suddenly they were like, this is perfectly good. Why would you throw it away? So, in some ways, they became rather unmaterialistic from being homeless, like, you know, over over a longer period. So, they, for example, they didn't really care that much about what they ate anymore. They they didn't sort of see themselves as suffering from, you know, like, bad food or anything. Um, You know, the, the vast majority of people, they were just like, oh, there's enough food around and I can pick it up somewhere. And, you know, they'd go to one of the soup kitchens or, you know, like, they'd, they'd had people working in the Tahrers, for example, in the mission who would just give them give mm-hmm. them yesterday 's beans or something, and you know they were just kind of like ah it 's food you know we 're lucky, so if people in Africa are starving, they would say stuff like that, so there was this weird sort of downshifting of expectations on the material level, which you know really I, I guess I was really blown away by that i was I, I I thought there was something kind of wonderful about it that they you know if as, as long as these guys had you know a, friends, had people to watch their back, you know, had people who respected them. They were they were even able to survive, you know, like all the stigma and deprivation of being homeless and not actually be like completely miserable.
1: Now, how do they understand, I mean, do they understand recycling as a way to eventually get out of homelessness or would they do they even see themselves in a precarious situation that they have to get out of homelessness? Um, and I guess, like, how does the how do how does that kind of contrast with maybe some of the other respondents that you interviewed in terms of their appreciation of this system analysis of Mm -hmm. why they're they're homeless?
0: Okay, so um, getting out of homelessness, yep, it's it's amazing how people kind of stop doing that after a while. You know, I mean, basically Snow and Anderson, you know, who did one of the first great sort of studies of the return of mass homelessness in the U S um, down on their luck, you know, that they, they talked about straddlers, people in this in in between limbo where they've become homeless, but they, they haven't accepted it yet, <laughs> you know, and they're, they're sort of trying to get back in. Now, a lot of straddlers do get back in, you know, a lot of people who are homeless are only homeless for a short time. But then, you know, if you stay homeless for, you know, more than a few months um, in order to survive psychically, you can't carry on seeing it as the desperate dreadful thing that you have been seeing it or you'll go crazy you know mm. and so basically people adapt to it and the interesting thing is that you know plans about not being homeless anymore tend to recede you know for for, for pretty well like most of the people i got to know and you know i it wasn't something they talked about that much with recycling in some ways, <laughs> what they would dream about is, is not so much not being homeless but being homeless in a much better way, so they would they would dream about getting a pickup truck and being a bigger recycler, you know but still but still right. doing it because they actually kind of liked the work and by then were rather expert at it, so they were like yeah i 'm going to get a, a van like some of those." you know, some of those Latin guys, you know, <laughs> and, I'll, and then I'll, I'll make a lot of money. So, you know, that, that was the dream of, of, of like several of the recycling, the long-term recycling folks that I knew. So, I mean, that, that's the first question. I, I mean, in, in terms of like, you know, comparing their perspective with that of homeless folks, you know, who were more influenced by the sin talk and, and sick talk. It's a, it's a complicated question. I mean, it, it I mean, one—the first thing I'd like to say is, you know, you can't define people by what discourse they're into, right? I mean, that's—it's that's not okay. the way things work. Obviously, some people are much more, much more in one direction than another. But all of these ways of seeing homelessness were kind of floating around, you know, um, on the street in San Francisco, and people could, you know, would switch quite, you know, dramatically between them on on occasion. Um, And obviously, like those who did have serious problems with physical and mental health were much, you know, the talk spoke to them much more. It spoke to their realities, you know, and so um, Mm -hmm. they were more likely to to take it up. Um, Well,
1: that's what I was going to say. It it seemed when you're describing the recyclers that they seem more higher functioning um, and more resourceful than somebody who would be prescribing to – subscribing to – sick talk narrative right i mm. mean it doesn't see it just seemed like there were it, it took a lot of um, resources mental resources to kind of figure out where you need to go and where can you set up camp and i would just imagine that type of person if, if saying a type of person exists is would be more uh, open to a kind of a system analysis but and so i'm wondering mm-hmm. like who was into the sick talk who was into the
0: yeah, no, that's a, that's a great way of putting it. Um, I mean, this this is where my comparative work in St. Louis is actually pretty useful because you know I got to hang out on the street scene there as well and sort of see how these ideas went down. I mean, what I would say is that um, you know if this, if basically sick talk is absolutely you know dominant um, you know in the institutions that people are dealing with um, and it's their only way to get any kind of resources. Then you know everybody's going to get pulled into it to some extent. Um, you know what you have. So, for example, um, I mean, there's a study of a of a of a smaller town shelter um, by Vincent Lyon Callow, where you know he he talks about the medicalization of poverty. So so basically, the stick talk really wins, and so people who in San Francisco um, would have been these say higher functioning recycler types, perhaps, um, you know, are just like very depressed sort of shelter users who are sort of like, you know, gradually learning to, to, you know, express their narrative in terms of their depression. Right. You know, which, mm-hmm. which there's something, you know, of course, some people might become homeless because they're depressed, but it's, it's, it's surely far more likely that people will become depressed because they're homeless. Right. <laughs> you know, right. it's like there's something not working with your, with your brain. If you don't become, you know, somewhat, you know, worried and anxious and down if, you know, with this massive downward mobility and loss of, of, of your life. Right. <laughs>
1: yeah. Obscuring the cause or the effect right. of one. Exactly. The so,
0: so, you know, you get, you get a lot of weird sort of distortions of that causal direction going on. But I mean, in big cities, the, the sin talk tends to be much more powerful and and why, well, you know, these are, these, these are the people who are coming out of the mass incarceration experience. Right. Um, hmm. So, you know, of course, in California, they hold on to some to some folks for life, um, you know, but basically they're still churning on through. I'm talking about the three strikes and you're out policy, of course, okay. um, you know, which is quite horrendous in terms of like some of the very mild offenses people are, are doing life sentences for. But, it, you know, there's still most people who are who are going down for or have gone down for, you know, say like minor, you know, Street drug dealing, for example, you know they come out um, with with no resources they 're brutalized by the you know the terrible conditions in the California prison system and you know they've they 've lost touch with with their families often um, or or have very attenuated relationships with them, and a lot of them just go straight onto the street you know like some people go into halfway houses if you 've been in jail, which is what what you 'll do if you 've done a shorter sentence you know in you're you're quite likely to get tipped out of jail at 10 at night you know with 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 no with nothing but your clothes and not even your clothes if you know there's been some problem i mean often i would meet people who'd come out of jail and they'd be wearing hospital clothes and like those weird little slipper things they wear in operating Mm -hmm. theaters and they'd be like I'd be like, where do you come from? Are you from the hospital? No. Like, no, I came from the jail, and this is all they would give me, <laughs> you know. And so, so these people, you know, coming out in their thousands, um, you know, into the California cities with, you know, nowhere to go, and they're just joining the, the homeless population, and they, you know, they have been socialized often from a really young age to see themselves as bad guys. You know, they've been, they've been, hmm. you know, expelled from school. They've been in, pro- in problems with, you know, say with the youth authority and, you know, it for them, if they become homeless, they just take those, those same ideas that I'm a bad guy and that's okay. Cause I'm a cool guy, right? You know, <laughs> and they take those ideas out onto the street and they, you know, basically they, you know, they, they, they'll see themselves as being of the street, but not on the street. They'll construct the street as a positive thing and so so in some ways these are the group of homeless folks who who have the most the strongest idea of their own agency their own ability to shape their world because they've they've accepted yes they live on the you know on the outlaw side of the, side of the line but you know these my streets you know
1: and i guess it's it's saying that you know the system didn't screw me i'm i'm screwing the system in a way i'm 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 in charge i'm it's a position of strength really And and they'll
0: actually look at other people who are homeless and call them, you know, poor homeless motherfuckers, you know, just because they are, um, you know, they look more stereotypically homeless, like they have a shopping cart or something,
1: you know. And that's not them. It's
0: not. You know, yeah. So, so if they don't have a shopping cart and they they're like hanging out, sort of, um, you know, doing petty thievery, even if they're living in the shelters and often sleeping, you know, being kicked out of the shelters, not getting into the shelters, you know, there's 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 never been enough shelter beds in San Francisco, but these folks will rarely see themselves as homeless, you know. And if they if they do construct themselves as homeless, it will be as part of a of a sort of working the system. Um, sort of discourse within, you know, some agency where they're trying to get some kind of resources, but they won't take it to heart. You know, Mm -hmm. they'll see themselves as being these sort of cunning players. I mean, I'd have people who would be like, yeah, I managed to, you know, scam some clothing from this lady in this agency. And I'd be like, oh, but that's what she's there for, to give clothing to people like you. Did you really scam her? You know, But, but this sort of, I came to admire it. You know, initially I was scared of these folks and sort of avoided them. I, then I realized if I'm going to do this thing where I really look at the different ways of living homelessness, I need to get to know them. So I, you know, I went and did all this field work with them, and I, I came to admire this this fierce life spirit, which says I'm not gonna I'm going to take this position I'm in, which is absolutely at the bottom of the society. Many of these mm. guys are African Americans they've just been like demonized and, you know, despised all of the, their lives and i'm going to say that i'm in charge of my world and that i'm actually like i'm i'm somebody to be reckoned with in my world which is the street and so i absolutely understand why people would orient themselves in that direction and and i think you know the you know it, the the mass incarceration is is just is creating this this vast criminalized you know group of folks who are who really you know can cause a lot of instability in the society and, and partly you know this is this is why the you know the the home the homeless shelters and all of right. the other sort of helping industries they have a huge job on their hands to try to get people to see their see their lives in terms of of sick talk when you know there's the vitality of this kind of syn talk model you know some of the most incredibly you know like Damaged people that I've known absolutely refuse to have anything to do with it with the sick talk model. You know, people who are HIV positive, they have tuberculosis. They're, you know, they have abscesses in their arms. They're, you know, they're, they're just suffering horribly, and they just won't have anything to do with it.
1: But, but I mean, how do they see recyclers though? Because I, because I guess system talk does frame homelessness as victims themselves, and sick talk is also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess yeah, you're a victim of your own mental illness. Yes. So did absolutely. people who embrace Sintar do they see no, these right. other homeless archetypes as more weak weaker individuals or people Yeah, who... definitely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean they actually one of my favorite bits in the book is it's kind of like a hilarious passage where you know, I sort of have have two guys talking about each other who, you know, who really distrust each other precisely across these kinds of lines. And so, you know, one of them is, is a, you know, a a drug dealer, extremely minor drug dealer in the Tenderloin. And he's, he's looking at, you know, another African-American guy who's a recycler pushing through with this huge load. And, you know, basically, you know, he thinks that that guy is just like hilariously delusional because he's like pretending that he's like a city worker. You know, <laughs> he's like, you know, what, where's he getting off on? You know, this is, this is, this is hilarious. You know, what an idiot. Um, you know, he's doing all of this hard work. So, so basically, you know, he, he sort of, he sees this kind of pathetic attempt to look, look part of the mainstream of society when they can't possibly do it. Yeah. And that I should just recognize he's like another despised, you know, black crack addict, basically and yeah. the other guy is you know you know don't go don't go anywhere near so and so he's you know he's he's not to be trusted he's you know he's he's just a bad guy so you know an ap- absolute gulf there you know in terms of you know their their whole orientation to what homelessness is who they are you know what what they're doing there what the, you know what the role of the society is in it
1: yeah, I mean, it's funny as you're saying that I'm having a flashback to my uh, social work days, where, where I used to be a case manager and um, sometimes trying to help these uh, homeless teens get uh, jobs. And I remember, one of my clients said, "Oh, I'm not going to be a sucker and work at McDonald's." You know, like I can, I can make a lot more money stealing from these suckers who work at McDonald's.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but I remember wanting him to make this switch of, like, you know, stop embracing this whole identity as this bad guy um but it really did give this person who had otherwise nothing a sense of power you know um as, as pathetic as i wanted him to see that it, exactly like you, the story exactly. You just gave about him you know scamming this woman that was giving him clothes um i mean that's that's exactly what i would see all the time like these little scams that from my perspective seem really pathetic you know <laughs> like you're scamming the people who are trying to help you but it it uh, was uh, consistent with the identity Mm -hmm. that they were cultivating for themselves. Uh,
0: Yeah. And, you know, our popular culture totally encourages that, right? You know, I mean, there's been this, this sort of commodification of deviance really, really since the counterculture in American society, which, you know, it's like these, these uh, outlaw images, you know, like obviously, you know, gangster stuff to some extent. Um, It, it, It basically glamorizes, you know, life on the other side of the line. So even like the most, you know, sad kind of homeless crack addict who does like a little bit of of crime can kind of see themselves as being a gangster figure. I mean, there's nothing, of course, these these archetypes are very old, you know. um, jesse james or stagger lee or whatever you know it goes goes way back in american culture but i I think it's been kind of turbocharged by the appetite of suburban kids for like these images
1: (laughs) yeah there's a way in which it really is emasculating for them um to say you know let's talk about your your problems let's talk about how you have bipolar or you're depressed um and um, they have to make the switch, as I was saying. You know, they have to kind of be willing to be okay to talk about their emotions. But it is a—it's a tricky transformation, I would say. Um, but it, you know, in reading your book, if that's the only way you can get into a shelter, um, you know, if you have to take up this language, um, then maybe that's what you'll do, and maybe you'll do it for a little bit, and then you'll leave, and then you'll say that you were scamming. I mean. Did you see some of that where people were kind of embracing sick talk for a little while and then mm-hmm. they would leave and then embrace yeah. kind of a sim talk? Um...
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, this is the most common phenomenon. And anyone who, who's like lived on the streets in San Francisco will tell you this, that the people who are, you know, often it's the people who are the most sort of like um, avid system worker inside of the shelters like those who will kind of talk the talk the most loudly and um and sort of you know fervently are the people who you know are will will sell you crack in the bathroom Mm. you know this is this is is the stereotype and there's there's a lot of truth Mm. to it and and it's partly because you know folks who are doing this kind of flip backwards and forwards you know they're not liars they're tricksters Mm. you know they, they have a trickster identity, which is just like it's all a game for them. It's not, you know, they don't see themselves as being, as being liars at all. They're like, hey, you know, I, I can do this emotion work to get this thing. Look at me right. do it. I'm good at it, yeah. right? So, so yeah, I mean, whereas people who are actually more, um, actually really more attracted to sick talk, you know, which is in- included quite a lot of the white guys that I worked with, I would say, you know did feel that they had long term issues with mental health um, you know and substance abuse um, but the you know they found the whole process so demeaning they they couldn't they couldn't reduce the complexity of their suffering as homeless people to those things. they knew it was much more complicated than that, and so when you you know to go in. Uh, and I should make a dif- differentiation here. You know, f- f- we're talking, of course, about you know single men, single men's experience here. So it's very, very different from other folks' um, experience in shelters because they have a different character. But basically, there's a huge difference between the emergency shelter situation, where it's just kind of like mats on the floor, not many questions asked, and the more guaranteed housing, um, you know, offered by these sort of transitional programs. And it's really in the transitional programs where, in order to sort of guarantee a a bed for a month or or, or longer, you know, they they would have to basically construct a a biography which, you know, which explained their homelessness in terms of, you know, one or more major, you know, personal flaws. And so for a lot of the guys, it was substance abuse that that they had to, you know, they they had to put down, Um, not necessarily because they were out of control users, but because, they they it had to be one of these things you know so basically the, in in order to be working on their issues they needed to have the right kinds of issues and so so it was almost a default thing that anybody who didn't have physical, mental health problems which, you know, loomed larger would sort of fall into the substance abuse bracket. And they would have to sort of sit around, you know, talking about their substance abuse issues and, you know, attend meetings. And, you know, basically if they wanted housing out of these transitional housing programs, the best road to getting it was to actually move into full-time rehab, mm. right? So, you know, the the the, the guys who that, that I worked with who, like – the white guys who were most attracted to sick talk, they were interested in reassessing their lives in these ways to some extent, but they found it, you know, too reductionist, too authoritarian, um, and they weren't able – they just weren't able to really pick up on it that well. They they just – they found themselves getting so irritated by um, by the – the rule systems by the fact that they they were being kind of, there was all of these folks they saw as sort of lying system workers who were, um, you know, just bullshitting around them and, yeah, trying trying to sell them crack, you know. The whole, the whole scene was just too depressing to them. So that the only time they would really talk about this stuff, they wouldn't talk about it with each other. They would, you know, they'd really just, like, talk to me about it or talk to, like, a medical doctor about it. So ironically, it was medical doctors um, and nurses were like the only people that they were really talking about their issues with, even if those issues were mental health or substance issues, because they felt that that relationship was less demeaning, mm-hmm. you know, I, which I find very interesting. There's something about the one-size-fits-all si- one, one um, experience of, of you know, sort of mandatory type 12-step um, you know, processes in these, you know, sort of degraded situations like, you know, public shelters, which is just extremely off-putting to people who want, who, you know, serious about their issues, I think.
1: I mean, it's almost like there's a pop psychology culture that you're describing within these shelters that kind of blend a little bit of um, sin talk, sick talk uh, together. It might be very different than what we think of kind of middle-class notions of one-on-one therapy, um, mm-hmm. uh, where you have this kind of unconditional positive regard by your therapist. Um, I mean, cause that's what I conceive of as, as getting mental health services. Right. But what you're describing sounds like, um, uh, group settings, uh, where you're not forced, but you're kind of encouraged okay. to, uh, like you said, describe your biography, in a way where mental health or substance abuse plays kind of the dominant role in why you're poor and why you're homeless and what's really preventing you um, which is it's a different type of it's a different type of mental health experience and I think what most people would think of you know
0: really the kind of um, sort of authoritarian um pop psychology that you get you know in prisons and homeless shelters, you know around issues of anger. Um, substance abuse, um, you know, domestic violence to some extent. It's, it's a completely different kind of uh, model of the therapeutic and it, it, it's cheap. I mean, that's the the first thing that I, you know, maybe I'm just being some kind of Marxist, but, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, I, I think that's the most notable thing about it. You know, this is, this is like one relatively unskilled person who, you know, probably has an associate degree, um, you know, in... In um, addiction <laughs> studies, or something at the at the most, um, you know, running a group with like you know fifteen to thirty people, um, you know, that's that's the ther- that's not like a highly trained you know mental health professional dealing with the intricacies of one person's problems. It's you can't you can't <laughs> you know re- really look at the specificities when you're doing that basically people have to start you know just intoning a homogenous biography where you know in the case of homeless folks that the street is it's the zone of denial that's what that's what homelessness is it's there's nothing about it's nothing to do with homelessness like being deprived of home it's to do with being too oriented towards drug use um, and, you know, with the street as the place where the drug use, you know, is where you where you buy it, where you use it, um, you know, and that basically, you know, you have to turn your back on the street in this sort of symbolic way, which is turning your back on substance abuse. And this, this picture is so ridiculously simplistic for people who have been struggling with long-term, you know, houselessness and homelessness, you know, housing marginality, that it it just infuriates them,
1: you know? <laughs> right, right. Well, because they have more immediate needs. Yeah, they, they, you know, exactly. I mean, I... They
0: have more immediate needs, and they know that there's different out-there's out there, that, in fact, you know, the out-there of the street is divided, you know, into all of these little zones. You know, some of them are spaces of denial and out-of-control drug use. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, others are not. And, you know, it, it's it's it, there's a whole world out there and to construct everything is just being like uh, you know basically the entire sort of non domesticated yeah. zone a place where a lot of people just feel dumped um you know to 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 construct it as a sort of glorified shooting gallery it just doesn't make any sense to people who are homeless
1: hmm. well i mean that's the thing i'm kind of curious about because i wouldn't medicalization kind of absolve um some guilt?
0: There is some... There's some, there's empathy offered. It would be ridiculous to say that there wasn't. Um, but it's not a reprieve. You know, it's, it's still basically... A moralistic model, one that you can, you know, you can, um, turn your life around. And there's, yeah, there's definitely, um, a whole kind of culture of empathy within AA and NA, which is, which can be really powerful for some people. But it, but it's a total mistake to see this as, um, a shift in register from, from moral to medical. I right. mean, as I said, it has very little to do with doctors, <laughs> um, and and indeed what doctors research or think about addiction. Um, you know, which te- is, is has shifted towards you know the, these neurochemical interpretations. Um, and instead, it, it's it's very much kind of still with the the. Um, the AA model and the kind of institutionalized AA model, of you know, started by Synanon, um, the therapeutic community, which basically teaches you to be a new person by instilling um, a new morality through through cognitive reorientation and and new behaviors through behavior modification, and so basically, you know, if if you do, if you if you take the road off the street, which is the only one really offered to you, if you're an able-bodied single man, um, and go for you know a, a lengthy rehab process, um, this is this is what you're expected to do: is to basically have your have your identity claims, your mm-hmm. your whole personality just got to strip down to nothing and rebuilt um, as somebody who's who's got the will, the self-discipline, and the right mm-hmm. kind of moral orientation to turn their back on the street as the street as the place of, of bad behavior and bad people and, and become this, you know, new, productive, domesticated person. It's understood by the people within it as, you know, a, basically a life transformation um, which which kind of, it, it changes your moral orientation and teaches you how to do normal, you know. <laughs> so basically, I think they would say, the, they would say, Hey, no, it's not superficial at all. Actually, this is the deepest kind of transformation possible um <laughs> that we're offering to people um, you know it but but it's it's an intervention, which is, you know, the vast majority of, of the intervention is, is, you know, in the person themselves to, to try to make them into a better and more functional person. And so, you know, the intervention is not on the conditions they're living in, right? So, and wow, that's, that's a lot to, to ask of people, especially if they don't even map what's happened to them in that way at all, you know. Um, it's it's <laughs> it's It's really a very difficult journey. And I mean, of my, you know… Thirty-five or so folks that I really managed to follow quite long-term. As like only one person sort of made it through that route. Hmm, really, the, the guys themselves wow. had a pretty good picture of this. Or at least some of the some of the folks, uh, the recycling folks, did. Um, so, for example, um, th- this one conversation that I, that I actually recorded, uh, Pipe um, was, was talking to his friend Manny, and he sort of said, "If those politicians in City Hall really want to help us." why don't they just give us housing or at least let folks camp in peace without being kicked around by idiot cops? I'll tell you why. Because all their friends running the shelters and all those other programs would lose their jobs. Hmm. Ain't that the truth, said Manny. So, But Manny actually took this line of thought further, um, kind of portraying the di- disease model of homelessness as a kind of social control which would prevent any kind of collective action. And he said it's not just about the money you know those shelters will break you down they want us all shelterized you know like depressed and sniffling around snitching on each other that's the idea they don't want another tent city on civic center for sure and they reckon these new style shelters that's the best way to do it then they don't even need the cops <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, so, i mean you, this is this is a pretty radical argument and you know, quite honestly, when I first heard this kind of talk, I thought it was, you know, like well, perhaps it's kind of conspiracy theory kind of um, reaction to it, which I I I later came to, you know, to reject. And I realized that that they, you know, they they were right that there was this this close connection, as in the example I gave you about the uh, the clearance under the bridge, right?
1: Right, where it gets kind of co-opted as a as a way of social control. I mean, he even says social control and you know if if the staff at the shelter are themselves ex homeless people it's really a type of self control where there's mm-hmm. a system that's being set up where you the homeless control themselves and are out of sight and into shelters
0: yeah warehoused basically yeah. you know you know one of the arguments i mean, you probably remember from the book is that that I make is when, when in the latter, latter part of the book I'm, I'm sort of uh, talking more about the, the institutional level and like the politics of homelessness in San Francisco, I sort of arguing that the policing campaigns and the, the way that homelessness is constructed in the shelters really sort of start to work um, work together um, in a way so that those, those kind of different ways of seeing homelessness aren't so, aren't so separate. And so so, so one, one of the examples that I picked up on early on because it, it really struck me was that a homeless clearance, which was happening, um, you know, for, from some folks living under a bridge, um, got basically discussed as sort of helping to save them from themselves in the press um, by both the police and by the guy who was running the local shelter. Uh, the idea that because they, you know, that letting people live in an encampment is, is basically enabling them. So basically, what this, what, the, what this does is it justifies any act of, <laughs> of, of police clearance or like brutality, like smashing up the, the more autonomous ways that people try to make these makeshift shanty towns, just like the poor people of the, of the global south, right? I mean, this like, this is what I would do if I were homeless. I would not be in a shelter from what I've seen. I mean, I just, I, unless it was a really nice one, you know, <laughs> I, especially if I was a guy, which I'm not, <laughs> you know, I would be out there trying to make my little, my little shanty or whatever. But, but but this this kind of convergence of, of sin talk and sick talk, what it does is it, it sort of it justifies cleansing this incredibly valuable space. In the case of San Francisco, this 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 global city, of all of this you know human trash, um, under the guise of being kind to the human trash, you know, <laughs> and and saving them from themselves, right? You know, so we're not we shouldn't be enabling these these poor people need us. So Gavin Newsom, who's like who is being like the Absolute, you know, leader of this approach, uh, you know, in in San Francisco, the the mayor there, um, you know, he he came in t- to office with this very different discourse from the previous I'm cracking down on homelessness guy who was an ex police chief, um, Frank Jordan, in the early nineties. So Gavin Newsom comes in, you know, and it's all like we have to help these people, and of course everybody would agree with that, right? We have to help these people, but a lot of his having to help these people has been about you know, making it just too hot, for, hot to handle to be out on the streets. The idea is, you know, we're going we're to have the programs in place and, you know, you're going to be part of those programs. And if you don't want to be part of those pro- programs, you don't want to work on your issues and therefore we're going we're gonna to make it impossible for you to live outside, you know you know and then i only realized this when i was sort of finishing the book but i think a lot of what i you know what you see in the in the you know the the street ethnography which is like the whole sort of middle large middle section of the book is is like how important sta- stable encampments are to people that in fact you know all the people who have like a a bearable life as homeless people are people who are not being disrupted every day or every 3 days um you know by having their you know all of their stuff thrown in a Garbage truck, or you know, like basically not not being around the same people, right? It, it's it's people who actually manage to make these these tiny little safe safe spaces for themselves, you know, who who psychically survive far more than the people in the shelters, you know, and, and and the homeless folks in San Francisco, whether they're inside the shelters or not, they they have a strong critique of what it does to people. It's it's a bit like you know you know what. I I feel reluctant to say this, perhaps, but, you know, the the idea of what happened to people in concentration camps, they become these sort of half people, but they they talk about people being shelterized and, like, just these sort of shuffling passive people, you know, a bit like, say, um, you know, um, oh, God, what's... Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cooker's Nest after he's had his lobotomy or something. I mean this is this is how they construct the shelterized person who's spent too long just like in the lines, just passively taking it and is checking out more and more, you know, psychically, so there's there's really not a person left.
1: But I I think in closing I just want to say I, I, I enjoyed the book. I think just because um, you're honest about what you observed in the streets, and I think you also raise up you know, these three conventional ways. You said simplistic, but I think it's they're, – they're, they're ways of mm-hmm. – the scheme helps you understand the ways that homelessness has been constructed, but then it helps you kind of challenge these ideas. So even as this kind of housing-first advocate that I'm, I'm finding myself becoming, you have to still kind of – the book reminds you to even question that. Um, because it seems like, especially when you're working with vulnerable populations, that right. even the nicest mm-hmm. discourses can be co-opted, you know, so our discussion f- for a while about the kind of pop medicalization, you know, yeah, mental health services for people who need it sounds like a great thing, but it could so easily be t- used as mm-hmm. justification for, you know, tearing down encampments in mm-hmm. the middle of downtown right. or whatever.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: So, uh, yeah, thanks. And, uh, yeah, I hope people go out and buy the book and… Highly recommended.
0: Thanks so much, Arturo.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Teresa Gowan, author of Hobos, Hustlers, and Backsliders, Homeless in San Francisco, published by the University of Minnesota Press. I've been your host, Arturo Bayaki, for the New Books and Sociology podcast, part of the New Books Network. Hopefully you enjoy the episode and the interview, and we'll see you next time.